on Twitter, Norman, of course it is, inevitably, where they're arguing against a figment of their imagination. Yeah. They are arguing against the fictional Andrew Doyle that they created in their mind. <laughs> and I'm in a position where I'm defending this this phantom. And, and they'll say things like, yeah, but you're anti-Islam. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah, but I know you are. You're, you secretly are. I'm like, well, where have I ever said that? No, but I just know it. I can only defend the positions I actually hold. I'm not going to start defending the positions that you imagine I hold, which I don't. Yeah. Because that's a weird game to play. Yeah. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Andrew Doyle. Andrew is a comedian, a writer, and of course, a columnist for Spiked. He is co-writer of the viral sensation Jonathan Pye, the fictional newsreader played by Tom Walker, and he is the creator and writer of Titania McGrath, the satirical SJW Twitter account, which became a book called Woke, A Guide to Social Justice. The book was described as hilarious by Joe Rogan and absolutely hilarious by Piers Morgan. It got great reviews pretty much everywhere except in the New Statesman. Uh, Andrew has performed stand-up shows across the UK, including at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, and he is co-founder of the hit comedy club Comedy Unleashed in London, at which comics can joke about anything they like. He has developed a reputation as a critic of political correctness and a defender of freedom of speech and the right to offend. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, I want to kick off by asking you about wokeness, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people say wokeness and mean different things. And there is the whole question mark over whether wokeness actually exists. And I sometimes find it hard to believe that anyone seriously describes themselves as woke hasn't woke just become a joke or is it a real thing it's well it's becoming more and more mainstream now the word i think up until about three years ago no one would have used the word to describe themselves unless they were having a laugh but unfortunately people are now sincerely using the term uh i mean it's an old term and it comes from the Mm. from the the early uh, black rights movement back in the 60s you know it's it's but it's something that's been sort of seized upon by what we would call, I suppose, um, s- social justice activists, uh, people who consider themselves progressive but are in fact very regressive. And they've, they've got hold of the term and now they're using it. And the thing is, it always makes me laugh a little bit, the word. So I, I, it's a funny word. I like to use it uh, to describe this, this, this character, Titania, because I think she would use it with all sincerity. Well, she doesn't joke about anything. Yeah. But it's an odd, it's an odd one. It's, it's someone who's hyper aware of inclusivity, diversity, you know, not offending anyone in any way uh, and, and trying to improve the world, just standing up against racism and homophobia, um, all actually good things, mm. you know, like sort of well-intentioned things, stuff that I would agree with, right? But in doing so or in the way they go about it, they actually are dividing people up and, uh, you know, causing more harm than good. So what is its relationship to political correctness? Because for a long time, really from the 1980s onwards, political correctness became this huge thing. And it was one of those weird issues where you would very rarely encounter someone who described themselves as politically correct. Yeah. And it it was a term of abuse almost from the very beginning. Um, So is wokeness really just a more extreme form of political correctness that, in that that kind of almost obsessive, myopic, psychotic self-consciousness yeah. in how you talk about things. But that's why it's actually a really useful term, because I actually don't generally use the word political correctness. Mm. I don't use the phrase 
And I even wrote an article about this a while ago saying, I wish there was another term we could use what, because this isn't quite political correctness. I think what you're talking about is that movement is sort of in the eighties and the nineties where, where people were basically saying, you know, let's, let's raise the, the level of decorum, general public decorum. You know, if you're in the workplace, if you're in a public space, then we shouldn't be calling each other faggot and whatever like that, you know, it's sort of a generally de- agreed social contract. I actually think that's a good thing. I think I'm all for politeness. I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it should be uh, enforced through the state or anything like that. But what I'm saying, it's a good thing that we all generally broadly agree how we address each other in order to be nice, right? But the problem is we now exist in a, a movement which isn't political correctness. I, it is something new. It's something where people will will um, resort to authority figures, the state. They'll hound people, bully people, get them fired, all of those sorts of things in order to enforce speech codes and the right way to think. And we need another way to describe it. Because if you describe it as political correctness, then people will say, oh, you're one of this, these yeah. uh, PC gone mad yeah. brigade. It, it then becomes a, a way to denigrate the point that you're making. Yeah. And whereas what I like to do is I'll say, well, actually, no, political correctness, if all you mean by political correctness is politeness and decorum, then I agree with you. And I think political correctness is a good thing. But if you mean what's happening now, let's call it wokeness, then I don't think it is a good thing. I think it's an, a, a sort of mild form of authoritarianism if such a thing exists. Um, and so that's why I think we need to, need to make that distinction. And that's why in a sense, wokeness, yeah, that's the that's the right term for it, actually. Thinking so are you saying, do you think there's a relationship? Or, or, or are you of the opinion that political correctness in its original form was a generally good idea? Yeah, I think- And it went wrong somewhere. I think it, this has, wokeness has been spawned from political correctness. I think what has sort of happened is people have not put the brakes on and uh, it's sort of escalated in this really, uh, a really horrible, as all ideologies tend to do, is they, they become these kind of perverted versions of themselves. And I think that's what's happened uh, with this. And it's been seized upon by, by people who want control and have now recognised that they can achieve power. Suddenly they've got clout mm. uh, through victimhood, uh, through grievances, that kind of thing. And and. I, I find it really frightening. And the, the problem is that people are having arguments that are about 20 years out of date. And they'll say, oh, yeah, but political correctness is a good thing. I read um, Yasmin Alibi Brown's book about political correctness. Mm. And she's talking about, she's addressing the view of what political correctness was 20 years ago. That's not what we're dealing with now. So it's a different argument. Mm. So I, I really think we should find a way to draw that distinction, not least because we can't have people dismissing our concerns on the basis of, yeah, but you're just complaining about people not being, you know, being able to not being polite anymore. And that's not what it's about. Yeah. There's always that risk that as soon as you say PC or yeah. political correctness, you will be lumped in with the Daily Mail and the PC gone mad brigade and the people who get upset if school kids can't sing bar bar black sheep, which I don't think never happened. happened. I mean, it, it was might a, have happened in like one school. It was a school that was teaching the kids about the colors of the rainbow. So they created a rainbow sheep. Right. So that's a good thing. To, that's a good educational tool. It was never, it was never to do with race. And then similarly with the Winterval thing, but even the Daily Mail themselves uh, retracted that and said, no, actually, Winterval, that's not, people weren't trying to ban Christmas. But even now, if you have a debate about political correctness, you'll still have people saying that. Oh, you, you, you're saying they're trying to ban Christmas. You're saying, no, th- um, it's a different argument. You know, th- you've got to listen to what people are actually saying. So the thing is, I, we can come back to this in a second, because I'm not sure I would make such a clear cut distinction between PC yeah. and wokeness. And I think the, the development of one into the other, I think is really fascinating and mm. complicated and interesting. And worthy of interrogation but but i want to ask you first when you say there are authoritarian implications to wokeness i completely agree with you uh, but i just wonder if you can explain 
because there might be people listening. It's doubtful, actually, that any woke people are listening, but there might I be. I so. so. Yeah, <laughs> might, you never know. Some Someone might think of themselves as woke yeah. and think to themselves, all I care about is being nice to trans people and black women and gay people, and I don't like racist terms. In what way am I being authoritarian? So yeah. e- explain how you view the relationship between this new woke culture and the kind of authoritarian clamp down on certain forms of speech and ideas and jokes. Yes, I think we go back to the point of it is largely well-intentioned for most people. I'm sure it is. Not in all cases, but I think what you've just described is right. People say, well, I'm standing up for the rights of these people. I'm standing up for their right to be to speak and express themselves without feeling pressured or anything. But you're not being nice to these people because what you are doing, in fact, is patronising them. What you're saying is, I want speech codes in place I want comedians to joke only about certain things in order to protect you. Mm. So that that isn't being nice to someone. That that's treating them like a child. So that's the, that's the problem here, and that's the distinction I'd like to draw. I would say, God, I hate it, but speaking as a minority, right? I hate that phrase. But if you want to do it, let's do it. I don't want someone saying to me, "Don't worry, you're not going to hear any." homophobic ideas you're not going to yeah. have to sit in a comedy club and hear someone joke about gay people we, we've taken care of it for you yeah don't worry i just think go fuck yourself <laughs> you know i'm not a child i can listen to difficult ideas i can listen to ideas i don't agree with i can hear them i can debate them i can ridicule them i can do all the things that we can all do and as soon as you start um ring fencing certain groups of people in society and saying that they're they're not able to look after themselves and I know the counter argument to this. The counter argument to this is that there are these uh, these power structures within society, yeah. these institutionalized power structures uh, that perpetuate um, injustice. And I would simply, I know what that is. That is just a uh, something that has uh, come out of uh, many, many years of post structuralist thought in in our universities. It's a sort of vaguely misunderstood uh, Foucauldian idea about about how power determines absolutely everything in society, even down to language. And of course, and and it's not true. Like mm. it's 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 all bunkum. Uh, it's just that it was fashionable in universities about fifteen years ago. It's not anymore, really. So I question that. You see, that that's why I find it very difficult to talk to woke people. I try, they won't do it. They they don't want to have the conversation because if they had the conversation, they had to actually elaborate on their thought process. It might fall apart, and it, well, it would fall apart because can you provide any evidence that everything is dominated by power structures in mm. society? You can't. And no one's denying that power exists or that it affects... Absolutely every relationship has power involved, has status involved. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely impossible, though, to quantify that and to resolve any perceived problem with that. It's not. It's just simply not possible. And the the great irony of that, of course, is that they see power working in mysterious ways in all areas of life. Yeah. And yet when power is quite explicitly wielded in, in their favour, as they would see it, yeah. whether it's a university group banning someone or you know the remainer set trying to overthrow the democratic vote for brexit they don't see that as an unacceptable abuse of power but one thing i wanted to ask you about i think the point you make there is absolutely right about the um this desire to protect minority groups in particular from difficult ideas or offensive ideas And, and it strikes me that one of the one of the things i find most frustrating about wokeness is that there is this presumption that it is the progressive, radical, left-wing mm-hmm. approach. And if you disagree with it, you must be on the right, possibly even on the far right. Yeah. But it seems to me that wokeness reverses so many of the gains of the post-war progressive period, yeah. particularly in relation to ethnic minority and m- minorities and women and um, gay people. 
because what it does it it, it re-infantilizes those sections of society yeah. through saying well you are for some reason more fragile yeah. than your average straight white male and yeah. therefore you need special protection so i've always thought of wokeness as uh, the thing that I dislike about it is that it's a, re- a rewinding off some of those progressive gains. It, it, of that ab- it absolutely is. You know, when we, I, I was p- taking part in a panel and a debate about comedy and someone raised the point of how, you know, we have to be careful if we're going to mock a marginalized group. So we, if we mock Islam, for instance, mm. well, well, uh, you know, we have a minority Muslim population, so they, they shouldn't have to put up with that. And my view of that is, well, how low is your opinion of Muslims yeah, that right. you think that Muslims can't take a joke? How low is your opinion? You are yeah. the one who is is peddling this kind of unpleasant view of Muslim people. Whereas I would say, let's treat everyone the same. Yeah. Which, which is surely a progressive value, isn't yeah. it? That, that, that's, but worse still, I mean, you're saying that, that um, it's undoing a lot of the work that the, the left have done. I think it's also identity politics generally, but wokeness, it's all tied together, has made us a more racist society. Mm. I think that's undoubtedly true, mm. which is really upsetting. It's made us more more likely uh, to be homophobic, more likely to to have sexist views. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, no one would have even said, oh, women aren't funny or where the female comedian. It was just a given that, that loads of female comedians were, were funny. All of my favourite comedians, as it happens as a child, were, were female. It was all like Victoria Wood and French and Saunders and Ruby Wax and Joe Brand and Madeleine yeah. Kahn and Roseanne Barr. You know? no, and and I, all my friends at school were lads, right? But they'd come in and they'd talk about yeah. those performers and the jokes they'd told on TV. And no one for a second said, yeah, but it's, it's birds, isn't it? It's, no, yeah. th- 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 this is not, it wasn't the case. You watch old episodes of, of Top of the Pops and you see that most of the charts were black artists. And it never occurred to anyone that this was unusual. But now you notice race, everyone does. Now, now when I see black performers in plays or, or black acts on TV or comedians or whatever, you start thinking, oh, I see. So they're there for, for the diversity reason. They're there to tick that box. And you stop seeing them as in, it, it does make us, they would say it makes us more racially conscious. I would say it, it, it makes people more racist. Yeah. I really do. I mean, I remember when Christopher Hitchens wrote about this in his um, autobiography and he talked about uh, when someone asked him to fill out a form and it says, what's your race? He'll put human. And he believed in this idea of co- the, the ideal, whether it's possible or not, but the ideal of colorblindness. Yeah. And that actually is the ideal. Uh, and as he pointed out, once, once after the Human Genome Project, once they uh, you know, d- mapped the, the human genome, which I think finished in 2003, early 2000s anyway, we know that race is pretty much a social construct. They're actually right about this. There is no uh, significant difference between any human being. So actually race is something that we should be, should aspire not to notice. Yeah. Right. And that's not to say that you don't actually notice in the way that you notice that someone's left-handed or right-handed and you make provisions accordingly. Um, you, you just don't treat them differently. It doesn't even cross your mind to treat people differently on the basis of their race and gender and sexuality. And that's how, that's where we should be. And I feel like we were almost there. I feel mm. like we weren't completely there. Like we had, you know, when I was growing up, there were racists, there were homophobes. I was on the receiving end of it, right? It was there, but we were, we'd reached the momentum point where if we just let things go, we would have, I'm not saying you can never sort those things out entirely. But we were in a, a really great position and we've just unpicked all of that work and we've we've cultivated this society that is really damaging to race relations. It really upsets me. I uh, I, I completely agree with that analysis. And I think one that's one of the most nauseating things about wokeness, which is this constant invitation to racial awareness. Mm-hmm. Whereas previously in the 60s and 
the 70s, the progressive approach was to refuse to be racially aware. I don't yeah. want to have a racial awareness. I don't want to clock people's skin color. But now you have this bizarre situation where at UCLA, for example, mm-hmm. um, it's basically, a, it's now counted as a microaggression yeah. to be colorblind. So they have a That's list, right. they have a list of microaggressions. And one of them is, um, if you say, I don't see races, I only believe in the human race. And the reason that's clocked as a microaggression is because you are apparently denying the historical racial experience that's of not the person it, you're talking that's to. not what it means is it mm. to say i don't see race it's not a literal statement that you don't see the difference yeah. between a black person and a white person it means that you don't care about the difference yeah. so it, it's it's again i mean they're very literal-minded people a lot of these work mm. people but that, that's what that's that's the the problem and that's and that is a beautiful thing surely you know i, I it, it feels like as we get more and more progressive as a society and as there are fewer racists out there, people are taking more effort to try and find racism or try and, you know, I mean, let's give an example. There are situations historically where you would need, for instance, diversity quotas, right? So if you take the the RUC in Northern Ireland, then, well, the, the PSNI, uh, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, which, which historically has been a predominantly po- Protestant body that has uh, literally attacked Catholic communities, mm. um, you know, to the extent of trashing their houses, storming into, the, you know, mm. real authoritarian behaviour. You have to implement some kind of uh, quota system to ensure that there are Catholics and Protestants within that force. That makes complete sense. But the BBC at the moment does not need to impose internships for non-whites only because by doing so, it's acknowledging that it believes its staff are racist yeah. and that the people who are making the employment decisions are racist. And it's kind of, why would they say that? It's not true. Yeah. It's simply not true. So why are we applying these sort of uh, rigorous, overbearing ideas that that, sh- that should have been dispensed with a long time ago? Mm. I think the, the point you make about um, previously we wouldn't, well, not pre- not for all time but certainly mm. you know in the 80s and maybe the early 90s when you'd reached the kind of pinnacle of uh, the the kind of post 60s moment and people were fairly chilled out about things like race and sex yeah. um people didn't notice those things i remember also people at my school were huge fans of victoria wood would come in quoting at length the skits they'd seen on her show the night before yeah. no one ever talked about the fact that how odd it is that a woman was making jokes yeah. also i was struck by um when skin from skunk and nancy um counteracted stormzy recently by yeah. saying actually she was the first black britain to headline at glastonbury yeah. and then um she didn't do it in a mean way she was just saying hold on i did this you know yeah. 15 years ago and she made the point that it wasn't a big deal and pe- yeah. so people were saying to her oh how comes it didn't make a big splash and she yeah. said well no one really commented on it i yeah. was just a rock performer at glastonbury so i think it's such a um horrible situation we've arrived at where yeah. those the people who claim to be the progressives and who claim to be on the left and who claim to be the radicals are the ones who have heightened racial awareness and and sexual awareness and everything else to such a degree that society itself becomes this really patched worked divided thing it's, di- it's difficult to explain to someone who's young i mean i've talked to to young people university age people about this but of course they've always known this they haven't known anything different yeah they're not old enough to remember a time where we just didn't care about this stuff mm. and again the, the the problem is that that is often interpreted as, as meaning you don't care about racism but that wasn't the case like that's not what i mean by that um we've always been any civilized person has always stood up against racism that's not the point 
But the point is that we are not going to analyze something on a racial basis unless it is called for. In a case of racism, it is called for. You need to, you need to yeah. acknowledge that race is a factor in that situation and you need to redress the injustice of that. But you're applying that template to a situation that isn't necessarily anything to do with race whatsoever. Seeing that everything through the prism of race, as you said, even aspiring not to see it. Yeah. Is now see. I mean, Ro- it was a Robin D'Angelo who wrote White Fragility. She's she's yeah. made that point. The professor she said that it's actually racist uh, not to be racist in yeah. a way, like not not to you know. They've changed the meaning of the word. They've changed yeah. the meaning of the word racist. You know, she's saying you know you have to treat black and white people differently, otherwise you're a racist. Yeah, that's what that's what she's saying. She does say that. It's I, insane. I did a TV discussion with her uh, recently, and. I was saying to her, I'm not just a white man. There's other things yeah. about me as well, which offended her enormously because apparently yeah. I am just a white man and nothing That's more. all you are. It's all I am. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk to you about, you touched upon earlier, what you can make jokes about, what you can be funny about. And you, you, you use the example of Islam and Muslims and this desire among the woke set. They're really obsessed with protecting Muslims from offence and uh, Islam from offence, which yeah. is even worse. That's driven by this notion that this section of our society are very fragile. They need our help. They need our assistance. They can't possibly hear anything blasphemous or difficult or controversial. And it's often referred to anyone who would make jokes about that religion, for example, Charlie Hebdo, it's referred to as punching down. Right. So I wanted to ask you what you think about, from a comedian's point of view, what you think about the notion that there are some people you shouldn't take the mick out of because that would be punching down. I think it's a misinterpretation of what comedy is. I think Charlie Hebdo certainly as a, as a, a an anti-racist publication mm. for its entire history, the most consistently anti-racist publication, who decided to uh, mock God, essentially, um, which is in no way punching down. No. <laughs> it's, the, it's the absolute opposite. So I wonder what it is. I don't know what it is. Uh, is it because, I'm just going to pose this as a question, but is it because the woke crew tend to be very bourgeois? They tend to be very affluent, upper middle class people yeah. who probably don't hang around with many Muslims. That's the thing. Yeah. So they don't realise that most Muslims can take a joke. You know, it's, it's, it's working class people who live in ethnic diverse areas, who, who intermarry and all the rest of it. You know, the idea that the working class are the racist thugs is just beggar's belief when when most of the people who are very affluent and, and spout this nonsense live in predominantly white areas in gated fucking houses. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, look, I don't know what it is, but comedy-wise, I'd say you're... Uh, it depends what type of comedian you want to be. Uh, you can punch down, actually. Yeah. You can punch whichever way you damn well please. And if it's funny, then that'll work. I, I don't punch down just because I, I don't think I can make that stuff work. I'm, I'm only interested in what I can do that's going to be funny. And I'm not... I'm not an edgy comedian. I don't do particularly controversial material. So it's not really, and that's not natural to me. If I was, I would do it, but it's not natural to me. It's not, that's not an example of self-censorship. I, yeah. I would be, I would, I would have to sort of force something that isn't really there. Yeah. But I support anyone's right to joke about absolutely anything that they want to without, uh, and so do audiences. Most people get it. You know, it's, it's only a very, it's only this, as I say, this very bourgeois minority yeah. that, that think, comedy needs to be policed i completely agree that you know comedians should punch in any direction they please yeah it strikes me that if you are to make fun of islam mm. um or as boris johnson did famous comedian yeah <laughs> uh, about the uh, niqab and burqa and then rowan atkinson famously wrote a letter to the time saying the only way you should judge a comment is is it funny or not yeah. and if it's not funny you should apologize for it and if it is funny you shouldn't and he said boris's comment was quite funny therefore he has nothing to apologize for yeah it strikes me that to describe that kind of thing as 
as punching down is is really perverse because firstly islam has billions of adherents yeah. and is a very powerful religion across the world yeah. and also if women are being pressured by certain community figures to wear certain clothing that restricts their ability to engage in everyday life. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as a fairly oppressive approach to life. But I think punching down strikes me as a very dishonest phrase yeah. because it really is, uh, because as soon as you institute any suggestion of censorship around comedy, yeah. then it instantly in my mind becomes punching up because you're rebelling against that, you're pushing against it and you are defending the freedom to make jokes. Yeah. I mean, I wonder whether we agree, we agree on this because we might not actually, because I'm, I'm not of the view that comedians are generally being censored insofar as I do on the circuit, I do hear people joking about all of these sorts right. of things. What I do think is happening though, is that those comedians are never going to be on TV right. <laughs> and those comedians are never going to be uh, very commercially viable. So what happens is most new comedians don't bother even do going there and they don't take those risks. So really what the danger is, I see as is self-censorship. Yeah. Um, although that said, now you have these very egregious situations like Count Dankula, uh, like Matthew Woods, people who are actually, who do end up either being arrested, investigated, or indeed going to prison in the case of Matthew Woods for jokes that they've posted online. But you see, they're not deemed to be professional comedians, you know, so, um, the punching down, punching up question, like I say, I think if you were in a situation where people are pressured or comedians are certainly pressured to joke about certain things, that to me makes me want to joke about those things that we're not meant to. Yeah. That's the that's the problem. The instinctive response. But I think that's the that's the instinct for most artists, isn't it? I think when you're when you're told what you should and shouldn't write about, or what you shouldn't explore, then you do it. You do it. I think. I actually agree with you on the self censorship thing. Okay. And I think I think the the you know the worst form of censorship in contemporary society is self censorship, and yeah. um, it's not the jackboot on the face saying you mustn't make that joke, but it is this. Um, you know, John Stuart Mill referred to it as the as the tyranny of custom. Yeah, uh, where you just have this feeling that you probably shouldn't say that thing that you think, or you mm -hmm. shouldn't make that joke that is in your mind. Um, and you have that feeling not because the law has forced you to, but because society is is pressuring you to conform. Right. So I wonder. Uh, uh, but do do you think that? All, all of this discussion, and as you say, that the the likelihood or, or the the small likelihood that controversial comedians will be picked up by Radio Four and so on, mm -hmm. which is still in many ways the gatekeeper of kind of official officially approved comedy, yeah. um, that presumably it, it's not a legal form of censorship, but it has a chilling effect. That's so, right. So one, it, one example would be. Um, the, the Joe Brand controversy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, she makes this edgy joke about throwing battery acid at Nigel Farage. Yeah. Bit tasteless. I actually th thought it was funny. I think she's she has a very funny style of delivery. She does, always, she has this yeah. deadpan, droll delivery. Exactly. And when you mix that with a comment as outrageous as throwing battery acid at someone, I found myself laughing at it. But the fury about that and the intense fury coming, ironically, from right-wing people who claim to be anti-woke. Yeah. Surely that has that contributes to a chilling effect where comedians around the country, probably in a quite instinctive way, will say, I won't go there. It definitely does. I mean, that, that joke that she said, like you say, I find everything she says funny. She is a naturally funny person, the way yeah. that she delivers things. That joke is entirely consistent with her back catalogue. When I was a kid, I used to watch, she had a video called A, a Big Slice of Joe Brand, and I used to watch it a lot. And, and there's a joke in that about decapitating Jane Seymour, the actress. There's a, <laughs> there's a joke, she used to do a joke about, uh, you know, the best way to a man's heart is through his stomach no it's through his shirt with a bread knife you know now these she was exp explicitly saying <laughs> violent images that yeah. was part of her shtick it always has been yeah. it's a, but there's this new way of interpreting it now 
You know, it's like, uh, people, yeah. it's like with Louis C.K. People are saying, oh, why has he gone all edgy and right wing? So do you, did you heard any of his material? Do you know what you're talking about? Or are you just reinterpreting it through this modern prism? Mm. Uh, that's what wokeness does as well. It makes you completely humorless and, uh, you know, yeah. unable to take a joke. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. The question is whether self-censorship is not simply the individual comedian saying I won't do that, but there is a social, there's a tangible social pressure. There is, but I think we have to draw a distinction between between self-censorship and state censorship and say that the latter is worse. Um, I, you know, I think it is. I think ultimately, even with self-censorship, there is a choice involved. Okay. So there are societal prescriptions. And and like you say, you raised the John Stuart Mill idea about about the tyranny of custom. And uh, that's all true. And there is greater pressure for it. But ultimately, you can still go against that custom, go against the tyranny of, of prevailing view. And you, you have that choice. It just means the risks are greater for you as a performer. You see, I think this is an important point to make because often I hear uh, the woke set will say that we, got, we can't have people expressing views that are perceived to be homophobic, racist, etc. Because what that does is have a chilling effect on those people's right to say what they want to say. And therefore, if you're for free speech you should be against certain types of speech. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make sense. No, but that, that's the that's argument they that present. But the reason it doesn't work <laughs> is because people still have a choice, right? So we could live in a society, in fact, you know, you could argue that when I was growing up, it was just, homophobic language was just the norm, okay? But that doesn't mean you had to be in the closet, did mm. it? it? It means that you've still made that choice, but it's a more understandable choice and it but it's still about your individual choice to make but i still think societally it's better to change the situation so you don't have that chilling effect yeah but any time i think my distinction is when when the imposition comes from the state yeah that's where i draw the line right um i i hate the fact that, that we live in a society where people are encouraged to self-censor as performers and i want us to do our utmost to change that so that people do feel more free to take to take risks but by the same token I don't want to equate that self-censorship and say that it is as bad as state censorship. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Actually, is making me rethink certain things. I think uh, uh, I think the emphasis on choice is actually really important because mm-hmm. so much. Well, you talked earlier about post-structuralist theory and fashionable ideas on campus, and and so much of that is geared towards viewing human beings basically as as flotsam and jetsam yeah, who exactly. are, which are shaped by the various social forces and conditions that they live in which i've always bristled against mm. um because i think people do have will and yeah. choice and autonomy even if it is sometimes strangled and 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 stymied but one of the arguments that mill makes in relation to the tyranny of custom is that it can be it can be worse than legal censorship mm-hmm. in the sense that it is often imperceptible. Um, and and the point I think I have made previously, and I probably would still make to a certain extent, is that you know where you stand with state censorship. It's really yeah. clear. <laughs> yeah. And most people, well, maybe today you can't say that, but lots of people are against it. Yeah. And they would say that's too far. But then when it comes to other forms of consequences mm-hmm. for speech, people would be more 
uh, willing to accept them. Yeah, I mean, and so there is a danger where it's really dangerous. I mean, it's it's not good for the art form. Yeah. Let's just put it put it like that. I mean, if you are in a climate where people are saying you can't joke about certain things or you shouldn't joke about certain things, and if you do, you're not going to get a, a TV job. Yeah, that's not good for for a creative art form where people need to make money. You know, so absolutely. I suppose it, it's so. So I think the, the 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 best response to that is to try and resist that culture. I think. I mean, you look. You, I've made a decision to to say what I wanted to joke about. I knew full well when I was joking about the woke movement that they would hate it and that that I would get abuse for it. And so I have to now face that consequence. We live in that climate, yeah. but I still made the choice, and I could have decided not to and and to just joke about you know, how small Donald Trump's hands are for the rest of my life and, and get a cushy TV gig or whatever, right? But, I, you know, I want to do something that's more satirically interesting. And and unfortunately now, if you're going to do that, then you're going to get the threats online and all the rest of it, you know, and, and that's just, you know, but they're not real threats, by the way. They're just, yeah. they're just idiots on their computer. Yeah. But, but you know, um, you know, you're going to get that, you're going to, that's part of it, isn't it? So it is about choice. Yes. So I, I'm down with that idea that it's about choice. Uh, what, but, one of the phrases I have real difficulty with at the moment is this notion that freedom of speech has consequences. Right. Because on the one on one level, it makes perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm. If you say something controversial, you and I know this, lots of people know this, there'll be blowback, you'll yeah. get a lot of abuse, you'll get a lot of flack, you might not get invited onto a certain TV show, whatever. There, so there are consequences at that level. But I, I often find that among woke people, when they say your freedom of speech comes with consequences – it sounds like they're saying freedom of speech is fine. You can say whatever the hell you want, yeah. but there will be consequences. And my question is always, well, what are those consequences? Right. If, the, if the consequences is, is more speech, people yeah. argue against you. They might even shout at you. They might even organize a protest. I'm down with that. That's fine. Yeah. But if the consequences are that you will lose your job, or you will be banned from Twitter, yeah. Or you will be restricted from performing in certain venues, yeah. None of which involves the state necessarily Mm -hmm. then i have an issue because then it because what they're then saying is the consequence we will ensure that the consequences for your speech are so high yeah that you will stop saying that thing yeah it's really complicated isn't it i i think if if this if you're going to get arrested for something you say then that's not freedom of speech anyway yeah i hear this all the time like like oh well you you lot are saying you want freedom of speech what you're really saying is you want freedom from consequences all the time i don't know anyone who's ever argued that this is this imaginary (laughs) argument i've never actually heard it said um because like you say, the consequences are people attacking you, criticizing you for it. What I would say is if they're going to hit you over the head with something or, or like you say, hound you out of a job, that's harassment. Yeah. So the, 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 this is not acceptable behavior. Yeah. It's a really difficult area, isn't it? It's, <laughs> we're not going to solve it. No. So let's talk a bit more about who makes up the woke community. So you, okay. you mentioned that there's a tendency for them to be quite bourgeois. They yeah. come from pretty well off backgrounds. And this is terribly like I'm making generalizations. Yeah, here, but, but it's but true. It is true. <laughs> it just is. And so I want to ask you about uh, Titania McGrath and this character who I think is on one level bizarre and ridiculous and, yeah. and, and says things that you, you say that's insane but on another level is completely and entirely accurate with where woke politics is going in certain areas so i'm right in thinking that she is a pretty well-off person had a nice life very comfortable but is convinced 
that everything everyone's out to get her yeah you know life the is really hard <laughs> <laughs> really difficult i believe you've reviewed some books that would fit I into have. this category i was just gonna ask you do you have did you have anyone in mind well, you yes. don't have to name anyone of course i did and i had this uh you know i got into an um, argument on twitter with someone saying a guardian journalist a guardian columnist had a go at me saying um oh you said that there's loads of rich feminists who claim that they're victims. I've never met any. And I said to her, you know, you work at The Guardian. You you know, you <laughs> probably are work. one of them, yeah. right? And then she was saying, well, name one. I don't believe you. And I said, no, I didn't. Because I didn't want to name people on yeah. Twitter. And then I had to name them. And then she said, well, that's, thank you for providing a list of the women you hate. I always, I always knew you were a misogynist. So that's, and that is the, le- that's the level that we're at now. Yeah. That level. And that she's probably a bright person, but that is a genuinely stupid thing to say. This, this is unfortunate, isn't it? That, that smart people, because of the cult of wokeness, because of this, this, this church that they belong to, they say stupid things, even if they're really, really, some of my smartest friends have been corrupted by this cult and they come out with utter bollocks. It's really, really depressing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you is it, it's the bourgeoisie element of it because I notice okay. that all the time where there is this thing where, you know, I, I do radio discussions and TV things and I will sometimes be accused of having, I don't know, white male privilege or something yeah. by someone who sounds like Princess Margaret yeah. and obviously had an incredibly comfortable upbringing, which I didn't, which is well, fine. It, it's but big- So it's this thing where everything is inverted. But this is not to say that people who are rich or come from privately educated backgrounds, et cetera, don't have problems yeah. and don't have depression. And in fact, I think studies show that depression is more more commonplace amongst those with money. So I don't think, but I think what that means is, well, it's like anything else. They only know their own experience. So so they don't, They if you've always had money, if you've never had to struggle for money, then you don't see that as an impediment, not having money, because you just haven't, haven't had that experience at all. And it's a shame that they can't apply their own logic to things because, because they're always going on about lived experience. Yes. <laughs> but not when it comes to class, no. not when it comes to social, That's you right. know, the realities of economic inequality, which they would have absolutely no comprehension of whatsoever. In fact, a friend of mine did this because I used to teach a very posh school and a friend of mine did this as an experiment, asked the kids, what do you think is the average earning? And they came up with something like 80,000 a year, like in the country. That was what they thought the average was. <laughs> Right. So it was about four times the, the correct yeah. figure. And and it's, you know, they just don't, people just don't get it. But this is the thing about the left. Like, I don't think you can be on the left unless you've got a sense of class consciousness, yeah. unless, unless you are interested in making life better for working class people. You you are not left wing. And and so, so many of these people who, who think that, you know, if they put a rainbow flag up on their, you know, Twitter bio or whatever, or if they, you know, if they vote, vote against Brexit or whatever that that, you know, that makes them left wing. It does. It doesn't, you know, mm. you've got, you've got to actually care about inequality and 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 they're right to point out that there are that when it happens they're right to point out racial injustice and all those other things that is that is absolutely right but what i worry about is that they do it at the expense of class they do, they don't even consider it really i don't know why it seems like a, i mean that some of them do i shouldn't say all but some of them do but it seems to be that you can get away with these sort of tokenistic uh ideas you know as long as we've got a female president mm. it doesn't matter that she's uh you know basically a right-wing yeah mad imperialist yeah it, yeah, it, it doesn't that. matter because we've, we've fulfilled the token of having yeah. a woman prime president right and that's you know that's not going to help a working class mother mm. who's got no money she's not gonna be like oh it doesn't matter you know the kids have died of malnutrition but yeah at least there's a woman in the white house yeah. that's like, okay then yeah like the, the guardian on its front page recently celebrated Christine Lagarde becoming the head of the European Central Bank. And you think, hold on, this is the woman who, when she was at the IMF, absolutely (laughs) tortured the Greek working classes and forced austerity on them while admitting that it wouldn't work. Yeah. 
and you know anyone who has seen photographs of Greek pensioners literally weeping outside banks because they couldn't get the money out. The idea yeah. that the fact that she has a, a vagina makes all of that acceptable, yeah, it's, is completely perverse. But I think one of the things I, I I completely agree on the on the class thing, which is so striking to me. And but in my possibly more conspiratorial moments, <laughs> I don't think it's just that they have a blind spot on class, but I think. In a quite instinctive way, this woke politics grates against class politics because yeah. what it effectively says is that class issues are not that important. Inequality is not that important in terms of class inequality. Yeah. Uh, and we have to focus myopically on race inequality and gender inequality and so on. And so it, it strikes me as a very post-left movement. Well, well also, it, it, it doesn't cost you anything to be woke. So if you look at like the pride it's such a corporate affair and you've yeah. got like Budweiser coming out with a million different, you know, flags for yeah. the various gender identities on the, on their beer cups. <laughs> and all of a sudden they can say, look at how good we are. Look Wonderful. at how, you know, but you're raping the third world, for, yeah. you know, and whatever. I mean, I'm not saying they do, by the way, I should say Some that, them do. but certainly a lot of corporations do and uh, they'll fly the gay flag when, yeah. in London when they need to. And it's, but you, it's cost you nothing. You haven't solved anything. You've still got your fucking sweatshops. Yeah. And like, it, it's, a, it's an empty gesture. And it's also a needless gesture, right? I don't need to go into Wagamama's and see that they're, they're not discriminating against gay people. No. I'd assume they're not. <laughs> you just, just want your just chicken, chicken katsu fucking, curry. Well, I'm a vegetarian, but you know. Oh, right? okay. like, but you know, it's like, I don't, tofu I don't, I'm not going to go to corporate capitalists for my morality. I don't, and, I, and, and nor should any leftist. Yeah. But I guess if the system's working for you, why would you want to change it? You know, this yeah. is this is why, this is why so many uh, upper middle class are so uh, pro EU because it works for them. Why would they want to change that? You know. So uh, talking about class is very interesting because I think you and me both think of ourselves as left wing. I mean, I do. Yeah. I think of myself as coming from the left. I was a Marxist. You realize people say we're not. I know, but so that's what <laughs> I, that's what I was going to ask you because. Here. We think we're left wing. I even think I'm, I'm a Marxist. And, but everyone tells me, and I know everyone tells you as well, that actually, not only am I right wing, I'm far right. You're far right. I'm yeah. alt right. I'm virtually Goebbels. Well, that's, that's basically that's, what I am. That's first because people don't know what alt right means. No. Apparently. Which is weird, isn't it? It's very like, weird. And I've checked this. Like, uh, it was Tim Pool told me about this. He said, just go on the Associated Press website and there's a definition for you. So that's the sort of go the gold standard for journalists. Just check it out. White nationalists, right there. You can't use that word without the white nationalist um, connotation, right? Um, and then you've got people in, and it is the Guardian. It's always the Guardian saying alt right, and 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 they haven't even googled it. No, that, like that's not good journalism. That's shoddy journalism. You know, th those people should be fired. They're not good. Absolutely, but I've been called alt right in nuts. the Guardian. I'm sure you have too. Yeah, and so the, <laughs> in the Guardian. <laughs> so, the, so the question becomes. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, okay. We, what? What's? I mean, what's happened to political language? Or, or are we actually right wing? So someone asked so me that recently. So, so then someone did ask me this, like, haven't the goalposts just moved to an extent that now you actually are right wing? Okay. So then I would ask that what, I, and I, do you know what? Firstly, I don't think being right wing is a slur. Yeah. So if I am right wing, great. I, I will own that. I don't think it's a bad thing to be yeah. right wing because it's a different way of looking at the world. But then I would ask, so what is it about me that's right wing? And I would, I, I really am interested. Yeah. Whenever I ask that question, I get nothing. Oh, you mock woke politics, or you, well, come on. What 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 is it about me that's right wing? Because yeah. I do believe in redistribution of wealth to a degree. I do believe in proportionate taxation. I do believe in the welfare state. Right. Um, I I do believe in class consciousness and social mobility. I'm struggling here. Where where's the right wing? Well, seriously, it's a serious question. What, 
is it just that I'm pro-free speech? Mm. Is, is that all it is? Because I honestly, I, and I've read enough about the differences between right and left to know that just objectively speaking, I can't see how I could be classified as right wing. Um, can you enlighten me? I ask people that all the time too. And the responses are always so lame. If I, if I do, I don't know, some media stuff and then you're always stuck in the green room with these awful people you'd rather not be stuck in the green room with. And there, they are invariably people who have called me right wing or all right and everything else. And I often say, what is it about me that makes me right wing? And the answers are basically that you criticize PC woke Right. Politics. But in terms of substance, you know, if you look at Spiked, for example, Spiked is pro-freedom of speech, pro-democracy. We want to abolish the House of Laws, we want to abolish the monarchy. We're pro-choice. Yeah. Um, we are anti-racist. We are anti-sexist. I mean, we're massively anti-imperialist. We're against pretty much every foreign intervention of the past 20 years. So the question becomes, in terms of substance, well, what, what is, is it? What it is, is people are imagining the enemy. So with Spike, mm. for instance, and when I ask people at Spike, they are, oh, well, they're a Tory, pro-Tory. Yeah. And, I, and then, well, I can send you a link to some very anti-Tory. When, when has Spike ever been pro-Tory? Never. Uh, when has Spike ever been pro-Trump? You know, I, I don't, it's not there if you read it. Yeah. But if you, if you refuse to read it, and then you just decide what it is, then yeah, I mean, and it's the same thing like on 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 Twitter. Normally, of course, it is inevitably. The arguments I get in with people, I I end up in an argument where they're arguing against a figment of their imagination. Yeah, they are arguing against the fictional Andrew Doyle that they created in their mind, <laughs> and I'm in a position where I'm defending this this phantom, and, and they'll say things like, "Yeah, but you're anti-Islam," and I'm like, "No, I'm not." Yeah, but I know you are. You you secretly are. I'm like, well, where have I ever said that? No, but I just know it. That's the that's the level of argument. And actually, you can't argue against people like that because they're fantasists. Yes. So I can only argue against the. I can only defend the positions I actually hold. I'm not going to start defending the positions that you imagine I hold, which I don't. Yeah. Because that's a weird game to play. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I suppose I sound a bit exasperated and angry about this, but I'm a, I am a bit sick of this. Like people telling me that I'm I'm secretly a racist. Yeah. I've never said or done anything racist, but these strangers know my mind. What are they talking about? Yeah. They just invent this stuff. And is it just, and again, that's why I think a lot of them don't want to talk to you. Mm. Like uh, a lot of the sort of lefty podcasts and the, and the lefty interviews, they don't want to interview us or debate us or talk to us because then they would have to acknowledge that their perception of us is not accurate. Yeah. And it's much easier to live in this fantasy to be these sort of lotus eaters that just sort of, you know, they, 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 they're enjoying their opiate too much. They're enjoying the, the monsters they've created. Mm. I, you know, well, good good luck to him. But I just think it's nonsense. It's not serious debate. No, uh, my theory is that the reason a lot of these people don't want to talk to us and me and pe- other people involved in Spite is because their whole caricature would fall apart. And actually they would discover that we are far more left-wing than they are. It's definitely of, the case. That's a hundred percent. I could out-left these people with my eyes closed. The, it's idea, so bizarre. the idea that The Guardian's a left-wing publication has yeah. always made me laugh, you know. <laughs> but again, like it's, it's, it's middle-class Blairites who think they're on the left. Isn't it just that people don't read anymore and they don't know what left and right means? Maybe that's all it is. I think that is a part of it. But I completely agree with you that there is nothing wrong with being right wing. So my response to people calling me right wing and spiked right wing has never been, oh my God, that's the worst thing you could ever be. So I have to kind of push this aside. It's more that I just, I genuinely don't understand it. I don't understand how we have arrived at a situation where if you believe in freedom of speech and if you believe in democracy and if you believe that ordinary people are just as good at, as uh, aristocrats and experts and people who went to Oxford at deciding the future of the country. Yeah. 
that makes you right wing. I'm genuinely intrigued okay. and quite upset that that has come into play. What they, what they might say to you is that Spiked is uh, has a scepticism about man-made climate change. That's what yes. they, that would, they, they would often say. Mm. My understanding of that is that it's more to do with uh, the idea of uh, enabling working class people through technology to improve their lives. Is that not really where you're... Well, well my, uh, the Spike's take on... Uh, Spike's scepticism of climate change actually come... That, I would argue that that's one of the most left thing, left-wing things that we do. Because mm-hmm. if you look back to the things that Karl Marx wrote about Malthus... And Malthus was obviously the original population scaremonger, Thomas Mm. Malthus. And in 1798, he wrote an infamous pamphlet on the overpopulation of the planet and the fact that there aren't enough natural resources to feed how many people there were, which at the time, by the way, was less than 1 billion Mm -hmm. uh, because he didn't foresee the Industrial Revolution. He didn't foresee the Nuclear Revolution. And so Marx's point was that the thing that irritated him most about Malthus and Malthusians Mm was the way they naturalized poverty. Yeah. And so all the things that are wrong with capitalist society, that it can't provide enough for people, that it leaves some people, some areas undeveloped. The problem with, he argued, the problem with Malthusians is that they see that as a natural problem mm-hmm. rather than a political one. Right. And so the argument that Spike would make about climate change, for example, is that that represents a modern form of Malthusianism, where you are arguing that there are insufficient resources to feed mankind or to develop mankind or to have another industrial revolution in china and india mm-hmm. whereas our argument would always be that the barriers are not natural yeah. they're social and political right. and if we expand our social imagination and expand our political imagination then there is no end in fact that, but that to is, what we can achieve but that is not an argument that i've heard right i mean you're even acknowledging the the, the potential for innovation to solve climate change i suppose like yeah. mankind, but, but this isn't an argument that i've heard what i hear is uh, well, you know, if you write for Spike, it means you deny that climate change is happening. Yeah. Right. And and I, I'm not true. Right. Well, I'd be the first to say that I, I have no expertise on this subject. Okay. So you'll notice I never write about it. That's part, that's partly why, <laughs> but I am conscious of the argument, which I think is a really important one. It's one that Oscar Wilde made in, in his essay on this, the, the soul of man under socialism, yeah. where he talks about in order for us to fulfill our capacity as human individuals, uh, we need slavery, right? We, like This is why the Greeks were able to thrive because they had slaves. But he's saying, obviously, human slavery is an abomination. We need technological slavery. Yeah. We need machines to do our jobs for us so yeah. that humans can be liberated. And it, and and that does ring true to me. Like I, I, There's nothing worse. I've been in jobs that I hate. There's nothing worse than being in a, a soulless, self-destructive job where you have no room for self-fulfillment and self-development. And and that's really what the argument is for me. It's a, it's a, it's a similar argument. We need, to, we need to enable people to have more free time. My mind is blown on a daily basis by the arrogance of um, bourgeois, well-off Westerners, usually at the fucking Guardian, yeah. who spend all their time moaning about the um, growth in China or the growth in India and, and the fact that it is undoubtedly polluting huge parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, hold on, we are lucky enough to have gone through an industrial revolution 150 years ago, which has landed us in this society we currently live in, in which you can spend so much of your time on your smartphone saying things to people. And now you want to raise up the drawbridge and stop other people from going through the same difficult but essential progress. And so um, that's one of the things that irritates me. And I think if we were to go back in time 100 years or 150 years, Radical leftists would have absolutely recognized the argument. If yeah. you look at Sylvia Pankhurst, who was the most radical of the suffragettes, she argued one, in one of her articles that the aim of um, revolutionaries was to create so much stuff that there would be too much for people to consume. Yeah. 
Uh, and now fast forward 100 years and you have a left which is more obsessed with saving the planet than it is with producing enough for mankind to live on. So maybe it's... So what, we haven't solved this, have we? But why, why are we right wing then? Uh, um, no. So why so it's not, what I was is just it? It's that. free speech. I think. I think that's it. I think that's I, and, it. And I hate to say it because I was, I was clutching at straws there. I was trying to find something else. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I mean, people keep like, I've never, I've never voted Tory. I'm trying to think what it could be. Never voted. I wouldn't vote UKIP. I, would, like, I can't think what it is. I voted Tory once. Ah, in my life oh, well, that's it then you're marked that's that's that, what it is I'm sure. now. i think it's free speech it's and, free speech, and i yeah, find that is. really really worrying because what that suggests to me is that the left has so successfully turned free speech into a dirty word yeah that they've completely vacated that moral territory yeah and left the field open for the right which is annoying for two reasons firstly because i think historically speaking the left is more naturally pro-freedom than the right yeah and also all these right wingers coming in saying well we're in defense of free speech even if the left isn't it's not true no it's not and if you look at the way they attack joe brand or the way in which they attack radical islamists for example speaking on campus or any other number of issues they can be as woke yeah as the left i heard richard spencer talking on a podcast where someone asks him oh but we're not really it was another alt-right guy and i'm using alt-right in the correct way there uh, someone's saying, um, we're not really for free speech, are we? And he said, no, of course we're not. He, he says it. Of course, of course they're not. No. You know, like it, it's no, no one who <laughs> has an authoritarian instinct is going to be for free speech. Yeah. It's not a right wing or left wing thing. Yeah. It's a universal thing, isn't it? If, you, yeah. if you're, you know, it's just the extremes on both the left and the right are against free speech. That's, that's, that's yeah. pretty much how it works. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. So there is another issue, I think, that makes us right wing, which is Brexit. So I, and, ah, yeah, and that course, course. brings me on to <laughs> another uh, a round of questions I wanted to ask you yeah. about Brexit and the culture around i'm that segue a segue was beautiful uh, wasn't it? amazing i'm i'm a huge fan of brexit it's my favorite thing that's ever happened in politics <laughs> in my lifetime really what about the salmonella thing with edwina curry that was good it's even better than that is it okay um, so that's my favorite thing and um spiked is a big fan of brexit and uh, we're fans of brexit on the basis that the european union is this dreadful authoritarian oligarchical racist neoliberal anti-working class institution and the fact that 17.4 million Britons rebelled against it is a wonderful moment. Yeah. Now, according to the woke left and, and, and the Blairite left and every section of the left almost, yeah. apart from a handful of kind of, you know, proper anti-EU trade unionists, to be in favour of Brexit is to be right wing. How, again what's your view on that again it's an absurdity it comes back to the idea of like people just not knowing what they're talking about and all of these people if you'd have asked them five years ago to talk about the eu they wouldn't have been able to do it no i love all this stuff about people who vote brexit being low information have you ever actually spoken to a remain voter your average <laughs> remain voter and ask them how the european commission works or how any of it works in fact they don't know they don't know anything about it not the first thing. and i'm not suggesting you need to know everything about it by the way i think there are broad principles at stake here uh, and we can all, whether we understand the intricacies of the EU and how it operates, we all understand the principle of democracy and the principle of getting rid of the people who you, who are in power. That's something we can all get. And that's what people were voting for. Yeah. You know, we, 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 it's, it, I'm with you. I think it's a great thing. And I think, uh, although it became on the comedy circuit, right, a thing you shouldn't yeah. say. I remember having a conversation with a very, very funny comedian saying to me, um, 
oh, well, you vo- apparently you voted Brexit, but I thought you were intelligent, you know? And that was the, that was, it's a pretty standard response. And, um, I, and again, I'm not going to name names, but I had a conversation with a very famous comedian about Brexit. And it got to the point where, you know, this is someone who pontificates about how Brexit voters are racist on, on, on stage. When, when I actually asked him about Brexit, it was clear he knew nothing about it. Absolutely nothing no. about it at all. If you think the EU is a big left-wing socialist <laughs> paradise, you literally don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so just accept that or go and read a fucking book. Yeah. Like it's pathetic. It's not, it's, it's not a left-wing. That's the thing. The thing got reduced to uh, a, a difference between left or right, good and evil racist and non-racist and that's the way the predominantly uh, anti-brexit media wanted to frame it yeah it served their interests to misrepresent what this was about i actually would go so far as to say you can't call yourself left-wing if you're pro-eu i don't think you can do that i don't think we get to decide what left and right-wing means like i said like i don't get to decide that i'm uh, left-wing unless i am or like you know other people don't get to decide that i'm right-wing just because they say i am these things have meaning yeah that, you know, there's many, many, many years of, of, of political philosophy that identifies what left and right means. We can't just change the rules now. The EU is not a left-wing institution. Mm. End of story. No, there, there are objective realities to these words and these ideas, yeah. and I don't think we can completely discount those. And, of course, if you look back in recent history, the, the finest um, opponents of the EU tended to come from the left. Tony, yeah. Tony Benn is the most obvious example. Yeah, Jeremy and, Corbyn. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn. God, that's a blast from the past. Uh, but if you, if, if those people were around now, Barbara Castle, Tony Benn, Peter mm. Shaw, Michael Foote, Tony, uh, Jeremy Corbyn when he was interesting rather than now, they would be denounced <laughs> as fascists, presumably, right, because they so, are in favour of national sovereignty and they're against globalist So is it oligarchy. just is it just the infantilization of political discourse? Like, I, I feel that I like to know what I'm voting for before I vote about it. Yeah. But if you just reduce uh, the Brexit vote to, to racist or non-racist, and that's a very easy choice because we all, you know, most of us are, are non-racist. Yeah. But that's not what we're voting for, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's. Uh, I think it's become one of those issues around which the woke left, or or certainly sections of the left, are able to define themselves against something. Okay. And what they've cho- chosen to do is define themselves against ordinary people, yeah. against people yeah, yeah. who had the temerity to vote leave when everyone in the establishment instructed them not to. Yeah. But I think what, one thing I wanted to ask you in relation to Brexit is what it's like for someone in the cultural sphere, which yeah. you in, inhabit, whereas I don't, who supports Brexit. I mean, oh, presumably you're quite outspoken about it. Yeah. I mean, I did, I've done two Edinburgh shows about it. You and, know, <laughs> so I mean, I'm pretty outspoken. And what are the, what's the consequences well the first the first show i did about it was directly after the vote uh so what you'd find is if i if i told them i voted brexit too early in the show they'd shut down and they wouldn't want to laugh anymore because of course (laughs) the majority of audiences you know well it's comedy audiences isn't it so they're quite well off yeah uh so you know you don't you know you get a certain type what's good about that though is i just have to make sure my material's funny enough because you're you you know i mean i did the jonathan pie tour where i was doing the support slot and and the vast majority of the audiences were 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 anti-brexit and i was doing a pro-brexit set So, so you had to make sure it was good, you know, and particularly because they're paid to see me. So they're like, who the fuck's this? You know, so there's that as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, and, and, and I think there was a survey, I think artists for Brexit did a survey about this and it's something like 96, 97% of artists or people who identify as artists are, are pro EU. Is that right? It was, it was right up there. I mean, really it was very, high. I mean, comedians who are, who voted leave, I could name about three or four, I think. Uh, and there are thousands of us. So it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's extraordinary. and yet they will say there's no kind of 
uh, political homogeneity in the no. comedy industry, but there, but of course there is. Of course there is. But that is like Saddam Hussein levels of conformism. You know, when he yeah, used to get ninety six percent of the vote, and you'd be like, mm, yeah, that doesn't I wonder, sound right. I wonder whether some of them secretly, you know, yeah. because sometimes people talk to me when they're drunk. And they say, oh, you know, I agree with you on loads of stuff, but I can't say it, you know, and I get that, you know, I, I get it. Like I, I, I would be the same probably 10, 15 years ago. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> but one <laughs> of the, really one helps. of the, um, the, one of the reasons that's a shame that there is this kind of extraordinary level of kind of political sameness yeah. in, in cultural circles. Firstly, it suggests that something's gone horribly wrong yeah. because if they are all thinking the same thing, then they're obviously not exposing themselves to alternative ideas yeah, or to yeah. other ways of thinking or to ordinary people. So it does suggest they inhabit a kind of dissent-proof, opinion-proof chamber. Yeah. But the other reason it's a problem, I would presume, is because the uh, Remainer side of politics strikes me as being so ripe for piss taking oh, and so ripe yeah. for satire because it is it's so bizarre and over the top and increasingly hysterical and well, it's not, me- like, even the thing about when the brexit party clearly won the european elections they they said no because if you total up <laughs> everyone else's vote it's like they've never seen an election before and they don't know how that works it's, yeah. it's it's really funny and they just say the opposite of what's the case they say oh we need a second referendum in order to support democracy it's like this is this is hilarious stuff Mm. Or you've got people who are ostensibly anti-Cameron and anti-Thatcher, and they're all they're all going nuts over Tusk and Verhofstadt and and Barnier and a bit like Juncker. They, these right-wing, it doesn't make any. They're centre-right, aren't they? Effectively, those yeah. people, you know. So, yeah. so it doesn't. It is the incoherence which is always really really funny. So yes, absolutely. But the problem is that people a lot of the time with comedy they laugh because they agree, and that's that's yeah. sort of a problem. But that's the same problem we've always had. I mean, if you have a problem with with someone like Roy Chubby Brown, who will sometimes do material which is designed to sort of evoke a kind of hatred of, well, not hatred, but like, you know, the joke is aren't asylum seekers, you know, ripping us off all the time or whatever. And people might laugh at that because they agree with it. That's unpleasant and weird, but how is it any different from, from, from a leftist saying, oh, isn't, aren't the Tories scum? Isn't Farage scum? And then we all laugh because we agree. It's still a lazy joke. Yeah. That touches upon one of the last things I want to ask you, which is that um, it strikes me that, I don't know if we still call it alternative comedy, but yeah. anyway, when I was young, there was this palpable shift in comedy away from the kind of quite ni- late 1970s, early 1980s, kind of vulgar working men club comedian types, Bernard Manning, yeah. people like that, who who were funny, Yeah, I think, very funny uh, in terms of their delivery and their style and and so on, but who definitely had a kind of, I don't know, non-progressive view of the world yeah and there was a palpable shift towards a more alternative right-on form of comedy yeah, yeah. some of which was hilarious and yeah. brilliant but it did it does strike me that it replaced the prejudices of the old guard with new kinds yeah, of prejudices exactly. and think- then they have really come to fruition i think in recent years where you can have a comedian on stage absolutely ripping into Brexit voters as bovine and stupid and ignorant. And you think, hold on, in what way is this an improvement when you had... It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, but now they'll win awards for that. (laughs) But it is the same thing. Like, like, don't kid yourself. Don't flatter yourself. Like, like if if you're going to stand there and say, well, Bernard Manning isn't a good comedian because he had racist ideas, which he did and actually admitted to. Yeah. Don't think you're a better comedian because you're actually employing the identical tactics. Like, I think what you should be able to do is do your material in front of audiences that don't agree with you and it should still work. If yeah. your material is strong enough, it will. Yeah. But if, you, if you're relying on agreement, 
to get the response you need as a comedian, then you're probably not very good. Basically, yeah. I think I think we do need a uh, another alternative comedy movement. I think we need we need something that that hits back against the establishment. The, the difference now, though, and it is a real difference with the alternative mo- comedy movement. They were railing against the establishment, but it was an establishment that knew they were the establishment. And now you've got people railing against the establishment who think they're the underdogs. Yeah, that's a terrible situation. Yeah. I don't know how you. I don't even know how you resolve that. That's difficult, and that is a perfect segue into my final question, which <laughs> is: Do you think or do you aspire to a situation where Comedy Unleashed, which is the London club that you co-founded, yeah, could be? the starting point of an alternative form of comedy. And so the question I want to ask you about Comedy Unleashed is, do you stipulate what kind of comedy can be performed there? Do you want punching down, punching up, punching anyway? Or is it simply about uh, comedy with no ifs and buts and there are no rules about what you can do? This is the weird thing. Like actually what we set, what we, we set Comedy Unleashed up to do is to do what all comedy clubs used to do. And the idea is simply we just book good acts, right? That's our bottom line. And we book acts irrespective of gender, sexuality, race, or any, we don't ever even consider that. We don't think, oh, there hasn't been a woman on this bill, or there hasn't been a a person of color on this bill, but we just book the good people. And guess what? As a result, we end up ticking all those boxes anyway, because actually funny is funny and it doesn't matter. And the audience don't care. Um, So we do all of that stuff. And we also say, we encourage people, we say, don't self-censor, don't worry about getting it wrong. Don't worry about a joke not working. You know, just try stuff. Don't worry about offending anyone. Comedy is not a safe space and nor should it be. Because if it is, it's, it's, it's never going to advance. The art form isn't going to advance. So but that's all it is. So actually our aims are really, really simple. Um, but the, our detractors completely mischaracterize what we're doing, yeah. right? So, so yeah. for instance, the the very now well-known uh, Vice yeah. <laughs> expose where someone, <laughs> you know, went undercover to this den of fascists. Uh, and he was literally going around in the interval asking people leading questions about Muslims and gays and things. I mean, it was like that. And he didn't get the answers he wanted, so he just made lots of shit up. But um, <laughs> it, 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 it was really funny. Um, his whole thing was predicating the idea, like, this is a night for people where, where comedians go who believe you can't say anything anymore, right? I've never, again, I've never met anyone who's made that no. argument. I know of not one comedian who's ever said you can't say anything anymore. Uh, no one. No one's saying that. Like, so you, and, and this is the problem is that people are just inventing arguments that don't exist, right? And I got, like, what was interesting about when that, um, it's not a review, the expose came out, a lot of comedians were retweeting it approvingly. And I just got into, I, I, I approached them in a polite way on Twitter. I'd say, well, come down to the club, come and see for yourself. And the vitriol and anger that I got back from people who were reluctant to surrender their illusion of what they think the night is. Right. If they actually come down and experience it firsthand, unfortunately, they'd have to change their view. And that's not something they're prepared to do. These are people who are far more interested in their fantasies than reality. And that's a problem because how are you going to... That is essentially the hallmark of a, a zealous religious group. And, that, and, and you know, there's, there's no way to lure people out of that delusion, is there? Not really. No. That's why I find it very frustrating and difficult. But it's also why I've learned not to get into debates with people who are going to uh, assume a bad faith argument. There's no... there's there's no point anymore you know because if they if they think i'm hitler well to be honest like if they think i'm a nazi i understand why they wouldn't want to talk to me if they genuinely believe that i get it if they like uh, uh, the friends of mine who i've lost who think i've i've become this crypto fascist racist i get it i don't want to sit in a pub with a racist no i wouldn't <laughs> i just thought i'm not interested and if they genuinely believe that of me then i understand why they're behaving so badly the problem is it's not true. It's no. their it's their problem. It's their issue. 
and there is literally nothing I can do about it. But similarly with with, with comedy, if you wanted if you want to say that Comedy Unleashed is a night where the alt right can get together and laugh at gays and Jews, then you will believe that no matter what I say, and you're certainly not going to come down and see it for yourself. So there is literally nothing I can do about that. But what I would say is everyone else should come <laughs> and see what we're actually doing, which is just about free thinking comedy. It's just about uh, comedians taking risks. And, uh, and it's very funny. Andrew Dole, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.